0: Hey, all you freddy cats and kittens. My name's Brian.
1: And I'm Whitley.
0: And this is Deathly Ooh! (laughs) Need to write that down.
1: (laughs) You get the hang of it after 20 episodes. Right. We're on episode 21, by the way. Nice. I can't believe you're finally getting it together. Somewhat. (laughs) Oh, wait. I want to wish you a happy birthday.
0: I want to wish you a happy birthday. No,
1: I want to wish you a happy birthday.
0: Yours is a Saturday,
1: Brian. That's before. That's at, this episode comes out after. I know. I'm an afterthought. <laughs> your birthday's on Tuesday. I
0: know. That's after your birthday.
1: Yeah, but this episode comes out after my birthday. That's true. If you if you didn't figure it out, we're born three days apart. And I'm the boss because I'm older.
0: <laughs> She's the bossy. Me more.
1: Accurate. I am the bossy, the bossy lady. Hey, oh.
0: Anyway, how was your week?
1: Uh, my week. <laughs> what? Oh, it was Memorial Day. Actually, we had a good weekend. That was fun. It was fun. Went up to the mountains. Came home and was really sad to go back to work.
0: Right. <laughs> Got some fishies up in the mountains and had some fun.
1: Yeah, talk louder, brother.
0: I'm talking as loud as I can.
1: <laughs> no, you're not. You're like whispering. <laughs> yes, you caught some fishies. I did not. not.
0: Nope. Caught some rays.
1: Not really even that either. I just kind of chilled. <laughs> but I had fun. It was a good time. It was fun. So, yeah, how was your week?
0: It was good. Sad.
1: Oh, bye, Ralph.
0: <laughs> Ralph's last day tomorrow.
1: Brian cried a little bit. Very upset. <laughs> yeah,
0: because it's just going to be me working by myself.
1: So lonely.
0: <laughs>
1: he has nobody to call Ralph. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh,
1: man. What? Are we even doing? I don't even know. Well, I don't know. Yeah. So episode twenty-one, we're killing it.
0: I you could call it that.
1: We're having fun. That's all that matters. Yeah. And yeah, we wanted to thank everybody that keeps coming back.
0: And bring more people.
1: Yeah, wouldn't hurt. Really? Um, I went first last week, Brian. Did. So you go first this week. What are we talking about, my good sir?
0: So, my story this week is another one recommended by Ralph.
1: Mm, by Ralph. Because I
0: had no idea what I was going to do.
1: You and, never do. And
0: he said, hey, do this one. I said, okay.
1: Thanks, Ralph.
0: Saves the day once again.
1: <laughs> right before he ruins it. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so, it is the Ghosts of the Bloody Pit. I don't, I don't know if you've
1: heard, heard of that. I definitely do not think that I've ever heard of that.
0: I had not either until today. Today? Today. You're
1: really slacking, brother. <laughs> i
0: Um tried.
1: Tell me about this bloody pit. It sounds really gross.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, the rugged lands of western Massachusetts are somewhat dominated by the beautiful and remote Berkshire Hills. They are part of a land that has been haunted for centuries and ghost stories are more commonplace here. Many tales are told of spirits in the forest calling voices that have no source and of those who have wandered into the woods never to return again. Of all of these stories, though, perhaps the most chilling is the tale of the Hoosac Tunnel near North Adams in the Deerfield Valley. The tunnel was one of the greatest undertakings of the region, and work was started on it in 1851. It was not finished for almost 25 years. During that period, hundreds of miners, using mostly black powder, shovels, picks, and their own hands, fought against the unyielding rock of Hoosack Mountain. By the time the tunnel was finally finished, more than 200 men had died in what came to be known as the Bloody Pit. They died in fires, explosions, tunnel collapses, and in one case, by the hand of another. It would be the cold-blooded murder that occurred in 1865 that would give the tunnel its reputation for ghosts. It was during that year that the explosive known as nitroglycerin was introduced to America. The construction crew of the husack Tunnel would have the, hor- horror, the honor... <laughs> Of being among the first crews to use it. On the afternoon of March twentieth, eighteen sixty five, three explosive experts named Ned Brinkman, Billy Nash, and Ringo Kelly decided to use nitro to continue their work on the tunnel. They placed a charge and then ran back toward a safety bunker that would shield them from the effects of the blast. Brinkman and Nash never made it there, however. For some reason, Ringo Kelly set off the charge before the other men could make it to the shelter. Murder. The two men were buried alive under tons of rock. Soon after the accident, Kelly vanished without a trace, leading many to believe that the accident with the nitro may have not been an accident after all.
1: That's what I said. Right?
0: (laughs) He was not seen again until March thirtieth, 1866, when his body was discovered two miles inside of the tunnel. It was found at almost the exact spot where Brinkman and Nash had been killed. The authorities quickly deduced that Kelly had been strangled to death. Deputy Sheriff Charles F. Gibson estimated that he had been murdered between midnight and 3.30 a.m. that morning. The death was thoroughly investigated, but no suspects were ever found, and the crime went unsolved. And while the authorities determined that no killer could be found, the construction workers had their own ideas about who had killed Ringo Kelly. According to the rumors and whispers, they believed that Kelly had been killed by the vengeful spirits of Brinkman and Nash. They came to feel that the tunnel was cursed, and many of them refused to enter it again. (laughs) Some of the crew members walked off the job and did not return. The dark and broading place with the deep shadows and dripping water became known as a shunned one.
1: Um I'm gonna start telling my work that when I don't want to do stuff I'll be like no this office is haunted.
0: <laughs> I'm just gonna I, leave.
1: I can't be here right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was best avoided, most believed, slowing the construction of the tunnel down even more. In 1868, the construction site was toured by Paul Travers, a mechanical engineer and a respected cavalry officer during the Civil War. He had received a letter from a Mr. Dunn of the construction company, who had asked him to come and examine the tunnel. Apparently, the workers complained constantly of hearing a man's voice cry out in agony and, needless to say, refused to enter the half-completed tunnel after sundown. Dunn was convinced that the strange sounds were nothing more than winds sweeping off the mountainside, but despite his assurances, work had slowed down so drastically that he had contacted Paul Travers to investigate the matter. Travers and Dunn went out to the site on september eighth and the former military officer did not soon forget what or when he encountered there. He later wrote a letter to his sister and told her about the weird experience. Dunn and I entered the tunnel at exactly 9 p.m. We traveled about two miles into the shaft, and then we stopped to listen. As we stood there in the cold silence, we both heard what truly sounded like a man groaning out in pain. As you know, I have heard the same sound many times during the war. Yet, when we turned up our wicks on our lamps, there were no other human beings in the shaft except Mr. Dunn and myself. I'll admit I haven't been this frightened since Shiloh, Mr. Dunn, agreed that it wasn't the wind we heard. Perhaps Nash and Brinkman, I wonder. The month after Travers' investigation on October 17th, the worst disaster to occur in the tunnel's history took place. A gas explosion blew apart the water pumping station on the surface, and 13 miners were killed when the debris filled the Senko Tunnel where they had been working. The reporter for the North Adams transcript wrote that a miner named Mallory was lowered in a bucket into the shaft. He was told to look for any sign of survivors. He was brought back to the surface a few minutes later, nearly unconscious from the fumes inside. No hope, he managed to gasp out to the rescue team. Without the pumping station, the 538-foot shaft filled with water. The bodies of some of the dead crew members grotesquely began to surface. Oh, no. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, at least they didn't have to go down and get them. But
0: right. So or mo- they
1: weren't lost.
0: So more than a year after the disaster, the last of them were found. The missing miners and the macabre discovery of the bodies created stories and legends in the surrounding area. Glenn Johan, the correspondent who had first written about the accident for the transcript, wrote, During the time the miners were missing, Builders told strange tales of vague shapes and muffled wails near the water-filled pit. Workmen claimed to see the lost miners carrying picks and shovels through a shroud of mist and snow on the mountain top. The ghostly apparitions would abe- appear briefly, then vanish, leaving no footprints in the snow, giving no answer to the miners' calls. As soon as the last of the bodies were found and given a decent burial, though, Rowan stated. The bizarre visitations ceased. These dead men had apparently found rest, but some of the victims of the bloody pit had not. Even after the apparitions stopped appearing, the eerie moanings in the tunnel continued, and the men remained terrified.
1: I would be. That would be scary, right?
0: Not even like just because like the noises they hear, but if there's anything about mines like collapsing on you, or yeah. yeah,
1: that would be scary, like. When we go to, like, the Cuna Caves. Yeah. Have you been there with us before? I have not. Oh, my gosh. So when you're going down, it's, like, big open area or whatever. And you go down this super long ladder. And then, like, the further in you go, the narrower it gets, narrower it gets. And sometimes you have to, like, squeeze your body through little,
0: like... I couldn't do that because I'm super claustrophobic. (laughs) But
1: it's fun when you play, like you break the glow sticks and throw them everywhere. Cause there's like zero light. Right. Yeah. And then you play hide and seek and everyone's covered in glow stick. So you can see them if they move, but if they don't move, you literally just think it's glow stick on the wall. It's, That's it's crazy. actually pretty fun. It's a fun game. If you know of a dark cave guys, just don't get it in your eye.
0: Right. Like my dad. <laughs> so based on the account of a Dr. Clifford J. Owen. The haunting also began to take on other characteristics as well. Owens came to the tunnel on a night in June 1872 and was accompanied by James R. McKinstry, a drilling operations superintendent. There is no information to suggest why the two men came to the tunnel on the last night of June 25th, but one might guess that it was in search of the ghost who allegedly haunted the shaft. If this was the purpose of their trip, then the journey was apparently a successful one. The two men traveled about two miles into the tunnel and then halted to rest. There was no light in the shaft save for their limp... Did you just say limp? (laughs)
1: They're
0: They're in the shaft and they're limp... (laughs) There was no light in the shaft save for their dim lamp. And Owen's Later, described the tunnel as being as cold and as dark as a tomb. The two of them stood there talking for a few minutes, and then they heard a strange and mournful sound that sounded to Owens like someone in great pain. Well, because he was limp. I don't right. know. <laughs> limping. He's limping. Yeah. He then goes on to write, "The next thing I saw was a dim light coming along the tunnel." in a westerly direction. At first, I believed that it was probably a workman with a lantern. Yet, as the light grew closer, it took on a strange blue color and appeared to change in shape into the form of a human being with no head.
1: Ew. Yeah.
0: The light moved closer to the two men and was so close they could almost touch it. It remained motionless as though watching them, then hovered off toward the east end of the tunnel and vanished. I don't know
1: how you washed wash them with head. Right? <laughs> it was kind of like, what was it, the first episode when you said the one, the ghost would hide behind the bush? Yeah. And then he came face to face with the headless ghost.
0: <laughs> face to face with them. Owens and McKinstry were understandably stunned, and Owens later wrote that while he was above all the realist, and that he was not prone to repeating gossip and wild tales that defy a reasonable explanation, he was unable to deny what James McKinstry and I witnessed with our own eyes. Strangeness continued at the Hoosack Tunnel both shortly before and after it opened to admit trains to pass through it. How 6th- big
1: is this tunnel? I was thinking like an underground or mining stuff, but a train's going through it?
0: Yeah. Bang. So on October 16th,
1: 1874
0: A local hunter named Frank Webster Vanished near Husack Mountain Three days later, he was found by a search party Stumbling along the banks of the Deerfield River He was in a state of shock Mumbling incoherently and falling down He explained to his rescuers that strange voices Had ordered him into the Husack Tunnel And once he was inside he saw ghostly figures wandering around. He also said that invisible hands had snatched his hunting rifle away from him and that he had been beaten with it.
1: Oh my gosh, could you imagine that? <laughs> right. That would be terrifying.
0: Like ghost stealing your gun and then beating the crap out of you with it.
1: Right. Well, and then, like, he probably couldn't even see it, so he was just like, what the heck is happening? Yeah. That would be terrifying.
0: He could couldn't remember leaving the tunnel Members of the search party recalled that Webster did not have his rifle when he was found, and the cuts and abrasions on his head and body did seem to bear evidence of a beating. Later that same year, with the tunnel headings completed, workmen removed rocks from the tunnel and began grading the line and laying track. On February ninth, eighteen seventy-five, the first train went through the tunnel, pulling three flat cars and a box car. A group of 125 people had come along for the ride. According to the news stories about the event, North Adams had just become the western gateway to the rest of New England, but this was not enough to stop the strange stories from being told. In the fall of 1875, a fire tender on the Boston and Maine rail line named Harlan Mulvaney was taking a wagon load of wood into the tunnel. He had gone just a short distance into the shaft when he suddenly turned his team around, whipped the horses, and drove them madly out of the tunnel. A few days later, workers found the team and the wagon in the forest about three miles away from the tunnel. Harvin... Harvin? Wylan <laughs> Mulvaney was never seen or heard from again.
1: So, like, they found the the horses and stuff, but not the people?
0: So they found the team... Like Like the the team of
1: horses, or like the team of people?
0: The team of people, I believe.
1: And but he was gone, and nobody knew. Yeah, what was going on? That seems weird. Yeah, they're like, we're just gonna hang out here for three weeks.
0: They're probably freaking confused, like that one guy, the hunter that got his rifle stolen.
1: Are you sure it wasn't the team of horses they found? I don't know. Sorry, I'll shut up. It was a team of something.
0: The stories continued for years, creating believers from those who worked there, passed through, or spent much time about the tunnel. One former railroad employee, Joseph Impoco, worked for the worked the Boston and Maine for years. I don't know why, but when I seen Impoco, it was like, "Un poco loco." <laughs> you make me un <laughs> loco. <laughs> I'm sorry. He firmly believed that the tunnel was haunted, but he was not afraid of the place. In fact, he credited the resident ghost with saving his life on two separate occasions. On one afternoon, he was shipping away ice from the tracks when he heard a distant, distinct voice telling him to run, Joe, run. He looked back and saw a train bearing down on him. Sure enough, there was num- number 60 coming at me. Boy, did I jump back fast. He looked around for whoever had called out his name, but there was no one else nearby.
1: How could you not hear it, though?
0: Right?
1: Like, you can hear a train coming from a ways away. Yeah. That's weird.
0: So later he would recall that he had distinctly heard the voice before the train had appeared. He also added that he had seen a man pass by waving and swinging a torch, but he hadn't paid attention to anything but the shout. The voice, wherever it had come from, had saved his life. Six weeks after the incident, Nipoko was again working on the tracks. This time, he was using a heavy iron bar to free some freight, freight, cars, freight cars,
1: freight cars, freight cars,
0: freight cars that had been frozen on the tracks. He was prying at one of the steel wheels when he heard the loud, familiar voice again call out to him, "Joe, Joe." Drop it, Joe! The voice called frantically. Poco immediately released the bar and it was instantly jolted and thrown against the tunnel wall by more than 11,000 volts of electricity.
1: Holy crap.
0: The charge came from a short-circuited overhead power line. The unseen friend had saved Joe's life again.
1: Joe's got a death wish. Right?
0: (laughs) This ghost is just trying to look
1: out for him. He's like, Joe, you don't want to be here.
0: Right? Go home, Joe. You're drunk. A short time later, Impoco left his job and began working out of the area. Every year, though, he would return to the Hoosack Tunnel and pay a sort of homage to the ghost who saved his life. He was certain that if he failed to do this one year, some tragedy would befall him. In 1977, Impoco's wife was ill, and rather than go to visit the tunnel, he stayed home with her. In October of that year, she died. Joe believed that her death was connected to his failure to journey to the Husack Tunnel. Hmm. Throughout the 1970s and the 1980s, the tunnel began to be investigated by ghost hunters and paranormal groups who had heard of the long history of hauntings in 1976. Nope. <laughs> her history of hauntings. In 1976, a researcher from... Agawam, Massachusetts,
1: Massachusetts, Massachusetts. Massachusetts—it's so much juice, massive juices. So, in
0: 1976, a researcher from Agawam, Massachusetts, claimed to come face to face with one of the local denizens. He described the figure of a man in old-fashioned work clothing, backlit against a brilliant white light. Could it have been the same ghost seen by Owens and McKinstry in 1872? We don't know. Did it have a head or
1: not? Oh, who knows? <laughs> Only they know. Still a
0: mystery.
1: <laughs> How does he do that?
0: <laughs> so a professor and part-time ghost hunter named Allie Wallmaker had what she felt was a close encounter in the tunnel. She wrote that she was accompanied to the tunnel by a railroad official in 1984 and, while there, had the uncomfortable sensation of someone standing close to her. She also stated that several students from North Adams State College visited the tunnel one night and left a tape recorder running in the shaft. They left it there, and when they returned and listened to the tape, they heard what seemed to be muffled human voices on the tape.
1: That would be kind of cool. Yeah. I'd be excited.
0: The stories about the bloody pit still continue to be told today. Locals in the area still claim that strange winds, ghostly apparitions, and eerie voices are experienced around and in the daunting tunnel. Visitors who journey to this site today, however, risk becoming one of the resident ghosts themselves. The Boston and Maine Railroad still runs nearly a dozen freight trains through the tunnel each day, making this a trip that is definitely on the dangerous side. Hmm. If you're interested in the historical aspects of the tunnel, though, you can visit a museum that is dedicated to the site in the Western Gateway Heritage State Park.
1: But But I want to go to the actual tunnel.
0: Right? But if you are interested in the ghosts, I recommend that you tread lightly there. The spirits of the past are still reported to linger and dark shadows press tightly on every side. Perhaps the Mohawk Indians were right. They named this place Husak Mountain, which in their language means forbidden. Did they know something about this place that the builders of the tunnel did not?
1: Perhaps.
0: Perhaps they did.
1: Perhaps they did not.
0: Perhaps they did (laughs) not. Perhaps that is the end of my story.
1: Perhaps. (laughs) I definitely have never heard that one, so that was fun.
0: Yeah.
1: Every time you said Husak, I was... Who's sack?
0: Who's sack is it? In the shaft <laughs> with the limp light.
1: So, I liked that. It was a different one. I hadn't heard it. So, thanks for the suggestion, Ralphie. Yeah,
0: thanks, Ralphie.
1: Cool. Well, I'm going to tell you a story.
0: What a lovely lady? She <laughs>
1: was not a lovely lady, but it is about a lady. Her name is Leonardo Cinchuli. Cianciulli. I can't say it right. I've tried to do the pronunciation. I listened to other people say it. I can't say words. I apologize.
0: Just go with oh, chinchilla.
1: It's not chinchilla. <laughs> it's chinchuli. <laughs> chinchuli, chanchuli. I can't say it. Okay, so, Leonardo, chinchuli, Chanchuli. better known as the soap maker of Corrigio. This is in Italy.
0: Like, she actually made, like, soap?
1: Yeah, she was a soap maker.
0: Kind of soap. Soap. Like, wash
1: your hand soap, or you can hair soap. wash your soap, whole body with or it. Or
0: body soap. Yeah, you wash your whole body with it. She made body wash. Exactly <laughs> what she made was body wash.
1: <laughs> so, Leonardo was born April 18th of 1894 and was an Italian serial killer.
0: Did she hate all kinds of cereal?
1: <laughs> she hated all <laughs> cereal.
0: Why she, she killed, killed
1: it? Yep. Um, she was not what she seemed, and she was far from your normal middle aged woman. She murdered three women in the town of Corrigio, Reggio Emilia. I hope that's how you say those words. All Italian. Um, in nineteen thirty-nine and nineteen forty. Leonardo was born in Montella, Avellino in what was then the kingdom of Italy. She didn't have the happiest childhood and she had actually attempted suicide twice in her youth. So before she ever like was an adult in 1917, Leonardo married a registry office clerk, Raphael Cansardi and M- Basically her mom was not happy about it. She had planned for her to marry another man and so she was pretty ticked. Um this is kind of back when you arrange marriages and Leonardo's like nah, Raphael's so my guy. It's super weird.
0: Right? To think like, about
1: how horrible would you're that be? To
0: marry this person.
1: Right? So, Leonardo later claimed that because of this, her mother had actually cursed them out of spite, which brought about bad luck on their family for generations. In 1921, the couple moved to Pensardi's native town of Laria Pontenza. Okay? I'm sure I'm not saying these right. I'm doing my best. So, then... When they moved to this town, Leonarda actually was sentenced and imprisoned for fraud in 1927. Um, when she was released, the couple moved to Lansedonia, Avellino, after their home was destroyed in the 1930 Irpinia earthquake. It would later be categorized as one of the most destructive earthquakes in Italian history. The family moved once more to Corrigio Reggio Emilia, <laughs> where Leonardo opened a small shop. She was very popular and well-respected in her neighborhood. Leonarda Leonardo had 17 pregnancies Holy crap. during her marriage, but lost three of the children to misca- miscarriage. Ten more died very young. So, consequently, Leonardo was heavily protective of her four surviving children. Which same. I would also be, I mean, I'm already a little overprotective, but I would lose my mind.
0: Right.
1: Which I mean, I guess she did. So being a superstitious woman, her fears were fueled by a warning she had received sometime earlier from a fortune teller who said she would marry and have children, but that all of her children would die young. Leonardo also visited a Romani who practiced palm reading and told her, in your right hand, I see prison, in your left, a criminal asylum. So basically, they're like, you're going to have a crap life, lady. And she's like, mother! <laughs> <laughs> in
0: 1939,
1: Leonardo's son, Giuseppe Pensardi, her eldest son and favorite child, announced that he was going to enlist in the, en- enlist in the Italian army. Armi- Armi- Like many Italians during that... I thought you farted. (laughs) He moved and his chair made like a fart noise. Okay. In 1939, Leonardo's son, Giuseppe Pensardi, her eldest and favorite child, announced that he was going to enlist in the Italian army. Like many Italians during that time, he wanted to do his part in the World War II effort. When Leonardo learned that her eldest son and favorite child, Giuseppe was going to join the Royal Italian Army in preparation for the Second World War, she was determined to protect him at all costs and came to the conclusion that his safety required human sacrifices. Which, I mean, isn't that the only logical thing to do at this point?
0: Right.
1: Like, you just gotta do it. Um, Leonardo was a poetess and fortune teller and many sought her advice and came to her with their troubles Leonardo was strategic about her intended targets all were older women who lived on their own and were less likely to be missed all of the women dreamed of a more exciting and fulfilling life elsewhere outside of Corrigio. so let's get on to the victims the first of Leonardo's victims is Faustina Setti, or Faustina Setti. I don't know which way you say that. Um, She was a lifelong spinster who had come to her for help in finding a husband. Since she had no immediate family, Leonardo believed Faustina could disappear with very few people thinking to check on her. Leonardo told her that there, she had found her a suitable partner in Hola but asked her not to tell anyone of the news. She also persuaded Faustina to write letters and postcards to relatives and friends. They were to be mailed when she reached Pola, to tell them that everything was fine. Prepping for her departure, Faustina came to visit Leonardo one last time. Leonardo offered Faustina a glass of wine to celebrate. Unaware that the wine was drugged, she drank it and soon lost consciousness. Leonardo killed her with an axe and dragged the body into a closet where it was cut into nine parts and its blood was gathered into a basin. This is what Leonardo had to say about this murder. I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap, and stirred the mixture until the pieces dissolved in a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied into a nearby septic tank as for the blood in the basin i waited until it coagulated dried it in the oven ground it and mixed it with flour sugar chocolate milk and eggs as well as a bit of margarine kneading all the ingredients together i made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit so giuseppe and i also ate them
0: no right uh, disgusting
1: like, nasty nasty Faustina also paid Leonardo for her service of finding her a husband. She gave her her life savings of 30,000 lire, which was the currency of Italy between 1861 and 2002. This was the equivalent of $530 at the time and around 9,500 today. Um, so the next victim is Francesca Salvi. She was searching for a place of employment. Leonardo claimed to have found her job at a school for girls in they Say that's how you say that? Probably wrong. Like Faustina, Frances- Francesca Fran. <laughs> Francesca, was persuaded to write postcards to be sent to friends. This time from Corrigio. Detailing her plans, also like Faustina, Francesca made Francesca came to visit Leonarda before her departure. She too was given drug- giving she too was given drugged wine and then killed with an axe. The murder occurred on September fifth of nineteen forty. Francesca's body was given the same treatment as Faustina's Leonarda was paid three thousand lire from her. Leonardo's third and final victim was the widow Virginia Cassiopo. A former soprano, she was quite elegant and, as a former opera singer, had a beautiful voice. She was such a talented soprano that she is thought to have graced the stage of the Piazza della Scala, one of the most prestigious theaters in the world. Leonardo claimed to have found her work as a a secretary for a mysterious impresario in Florence. As with the other two women, she was instructed not to tell a single person where she was going. Virginia agreed, and on September 30th of 1940, came for a last visit to Leonarda. The pattern to the murder was the same as the first two. However, the nine pieces were mixed with lye in a pot, but the result was extra white and fatty. This inspired Leonardo not to dump it out instead to add some scent to it while it boiled this turned into soap that she gave out to everyone who would take it
0: Ew.
1: <laughs> Leon- this is what leonarda said about virginia she ended up in the pot like the other two her flesh was fat and white when it had melted i added a bottle of cologne and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some of the most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That woman was really sweet.
0: Ew.
1: Right? What the hell? <laughs> um, Leonardo was paid 50,000 lire, assorted jewels, and public bonds blonde, Not blondes.
0: Look blondes. Blonde
1: public bonds. She even sold all the victim's clothing and shoes. So unlike her first two victims who had few consumed relatives, Virginia had a very worried sister-in-law, Albertina Fonte. She didn't believe Virginia's letters detailing her quick departure and had in fact seen her entering Leonardo's home the night she had left. Almost immediately, she reported her sister's disappearance to the superintendent of police in Reggio, who opened an investigation and soon arrested Leonarda. At first, Leonarda defended herself. Leonarda did not confess to the murders until they believed that her son, Giuseppe, was involved in the crime. It was only when the police shifted the blame towards her beloved son that she finally broke down and admitted to everything. She confessed to the murders, providing detailed accounts of what she had done to save her son from any blame. Leonardo was tried for the murder in Reggio Emilia in 1946. She remained unremorseful. She did not give a... Leonardo was found guilty of her crimes and sentenced to 30 years in prison and three years in a criminal asylum, which, fortune teller, I see prison, I see an asylum. She died of a cerebral... Alexia. Alexia, basically like a hemorrhage in her brain. Um, in the woman's criminal asylum in Pozuli on October fifteenth of nineteen seventy, a number of artifacts from this case, including the pot in which the victims were boiled, are on display at the Criminological Museum in Rome. Huh. A dark comic play about Leonarda called Love and Magic in Mama's Kitchen was first produced by Lena Wartmuller. It looks German, it is. You can't don't speak the German. Um, yeah. so it was produced by her at the Spoleto Festival in 1979. The play began a run on Broadway in 1983. So and I felt this story was a little short, so because it was short, I added a little bit of, you know, stuff about cannibalism, since she technically was doing some cannibalism stuff. Right. So cannibalism is the eating of human flesh by humans. It is also called anthropophagy. I kept trying to say anthropology, and I was like, nope, <laughs> that is not that. <laughs> Um, The term is derived from the Spanish name Carabales from the Carib, a West Indies tribe well known for its practice of cannibalism. A widespread custom going back into early human history, cannibalism has been found among peoples on most continents. The practice prevailed until modern times in parts of West and Central Africa, Melanesia, especially Fiji. New Guinea, Australia, among the maoris of New Zealand, in some of the islands of Polynesia, among tribes of Sumatra, Sumatra, and in various tribes of North and South America. In some regions, human flesh was looked upon as a form of food, sometimes equated with animal food, as it indicated in the Melanesian pidgin term long pig. I wish I could say words. It would it'd make this so easy. Victorious Mar... I really want it to be Mario. They often cut up bodies of the dead after battle and feasted on the flesh. And the Batak of Sumatra were reported to have sold human flesh in markets before they came under full control by the Dutch. So apparently the Dutch are like, no, 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 no. We don't do that. (laughs) Um, In other cases, the consumption of particular portions of organs was a ritual means by which certain qualities of the person eaten might be obtained or by which powers of witchcraft or sorcery might be employed. Ritual murder and cannibalism in Africa were often related to sorcery. Headhunters and others often consumed bits of the bodies or heads of deceased enemies as a means of az- absorbing their vitality or other qualities and reducing their powers of revenge. The Aztecs apparently practiced cannibalism on a large scale as part of a ritual religious sacrifice of war captives and other victims. In some cases, the body of a dead person was richly eaten by his rel- relatives a form called endo-cannibalism. Some Aboriginal Australians performed such practices as acts of respect. In other cases, ritual cannibalism occurred as part of the drama of secret societies. The first known cannibal... I thought this was kind of interesting. The first known cannibal was a Neanderthal whose victims, 100,000 years old of bones, were discovered in Maula, jersey a cave in France, the six sets of remains show evidence of successful attempts to reach brains and marrow as well as tool marks that indicate where flesh from the tongue and thighs were removed for food, so like hundred thousand years year old bones
0: Damn.
1: that's crazy that they could tell that they were
0: yeah, yeah you know.
1: um so I know you're wondering this: is cannibalism legal in Idaho? I added this in here because that's where we're from. You might wonder, well, Idaho is the only U.S. state that discusses cannibalism explicitly within its legislation. Cannibalism there is defensible in cases of extreme life-threatening conditions as the only apparent means of survival. But convictions on a charge of cannibalism in any other case is punishable up to 14 years in prison. So in Idaho, you need meet, meet someone if it is the only way for you to survive.
0: No, thanks.
1: Is that not the weirdest shit you've ever heard? Right. Like, why is that in? Why is that in? Like, I'd rather die. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of cannibals in Idaho, Brian, why don't you tell us? Your experience with your cannibal friend.
0: I don't have a cannibal friend.
1: You know a cannibal guy. You knew.
0: I did not know <laughs> person.
1: Tell us about this one. You talked about him before.
0: I didn't, didn't know him.
1: I'm not saying you were friends, brother.
0: I worked at the prison and I was training one of the units I was in. An inmate came to the little call box when everybody had gone to chow. And was like, hey, can I get released to go to Chow? And the
1: person training me
0: was like, no, you won't like what they're having. I'm like, well, what are they having? And she's like, get it back on the intercom. And she's like, they're not having human. I was like, well, what the heck? Apparently, come to find out, that guy was a cannibal and had eaten people.
1: That's... To me, is so crazy because you don't think about that like around right. you, right? Yeah. Apparently, though, it was not in extreme circumstances that his survival depended on. Yeah. <laughs> so, I thought that was crazy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Also, when I was after I'd done all my research for this, my mom had given me this book right here. It's a serial killer trivia book. And it's fascinating facts and disturbing details that will freak you the F out. But I've seen on the back of it, the very top one, what Italian serial killer made soap with her victim's body parts? I was like, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) So I found her in here.
0: Nice. But
1: basically, it's everything that I already told you. I don't think there was anything, anything different, but... I thought that was pretty funny that, that I was doing that and I just looked down at the book and it's right there, top line.
0: That
1: is funny. <laughs> so, yeah. That's my stories. That's
0: weird that she would make soap and then just hand it out to people. And then she even made what, little cakes or something. Yeah, she
1: made like tea cakes and stuff. And just would feed it to the people because, you know, she had the shop.
0: Yeah.
1: And women would come to her. She did like her little fortune teller weirdness. And like they would come and get advice or whatever, and she would feed them these tea cakes.
0: Do you imagine finding out that like after she gets sentenced and crap?
1: Oh, I would like, be either be, the people that ate those
0: or the people that. I think i would be more sick by that than the soap one, but still.
1: What if you had both?
0: Yeah,
1: you'd be like, "Oh my gosh, that lady was delicious." <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> But I'm like, obviously, she did make it good, or the people wouldn't keep eating them.
0: Right.
1: But to find out that that's what you were eating would be horrible. I don't think I would ever be able to eat again. I would never trust anyone again.
0: Say, hey, do you want
1: this? No. I'm like, I'm only making my own food. I'm growing my own crops. I am killing my own cows. (laughs) Like, get away from me, everyone.
0: Yeah.
1: It would be horrible. I definitely would never accept a tea cake from anyone again. Right. It'd be horrible. So that's my story, bro.
0: That's a good one.
1: I liked it. I liked it. I liked it. You tired? Yeah. Same son. Um so yeah, that's that's our deal. Thank you guys for continuing to come back.
0: Yeah. So, oh. Did I show you the pictures that Armin sent me?
1: No, oh, of the Queen Mary, yeah. yes,
0: so my aunt and uncle went on a cruise this week, and we we're on our way home from the mountains on Monday, and she sent me pictures of the Queen Mary that was docked right behind where their cruise ship was, so I thought it was pretty cool,
1: that's cool. I'm excited to go there,
0: right. It'll be fun.
1: It'll be a lot of fun, well, and then. One of our other friends that we were camping with this weekend was telling us that um his wife had gone and stayed on the Queen Mary and had some cool stories. Yeah. So they didn't share them, how rude. Right? You know.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Drew.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: so um yeah. That's our stories. That's our life. Check it out on Instagram. At Deathly Afraid Podcast. We have a Facebook group, Deathly Afraid Podcast. You can email us at deathlyafraidpod at gmail.com.
0: Nobody ever emails us.
1: I'll email you. What do you want me to email you about?
0: I want somebody, a listener, to email us.
1: Yeah, guys. Stop right now what you're doing.
0: Email us. Send us. Right e- you can minute. just say
1: hi. I listened.
0: Yeah. Anything.
1: We would love it. So. um, What else? Did I say everything?
0: So. It didn't say Instagram twice. I can tell you that.
1: It didn't say Instagram twice this time. <laughs> Do you want me to?
0: Sure.
1: You can follow our Instagram. <laughs> at deathly afraid podcast <laughs> um all right yeah have a great day and thanks adios
0: we will see you guys next week bye
1: email brian and tell him happy birthday yeah <laughs> Bye.
0: bye